guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. Welcome to Mimosa Sisterhood, a podcast that celebrates women. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. This is Melissa, and I am officially back from my very long one-month unexpected break. I am so excited to finally be back on my microphone saying hello to all of you and publishing my next very long-awaited episode that I recorded in May and had every intention to release at the start of June just in time for our beloved Pride Month. But here we are, literally the last day of June, getting this episode out to you right before we head into July. So yeah, I'm so sorry that I went MIA. I'm so sorry that the podcast went on an unexpected halt, Um, but I'm so happy to be back. It has been really a wild couple of months on my end, and as a dear friend and fellow podcaster, Kira Doyle, once said, she cannot show up for her podcast audience and her community before she shows up for herself. And that's how I was feeling. Life has been really hectic over here on my end, and I really needed to put myself and my own personal priorities at the top of my to-do list, which unfortunately meant putting the podcast on the back burner. I've been going through a lot over here in my life. My four-year relationship ended abruptly, which required me to find a new place to live at a time when the rent prices are astronomically high. And there's also a shortage of rentals that are available. So I have been dealing with all of the stress and frustration and anxiety around not only starting a brand new chapter at the ripe age of 32 years old, but finding somewhere to live that is not only affordable, but in a safe and desirable neighborhood. So I finally did find a new apartment, and then I have been dealing with all of the chaos of uprooting my life and moving it to a completely different area. There has been no shortage of issues that I've had to face during my move. I have honestly called it the series of unfortunate events. Anyway... I am here. I am back. I am trying to get my feet on the ground and I'm slowly but surely ready to jump back into the podcast and to get back to work so I can continue doing what I love. 
Outside of my own personal life chaos, I know that there is a lot of other shit that is really hitting the fan out there in the world right now, specifically in regards to the devastating news of Roe vs. Wade. And I've been sitting with this for the past couple of days wondering how I would address it or discuss it on the podcast And I didn't feel like I could even get to that place yet until I got this episode out that I have been sitting on for the past month. And to be honest, it's very timely because if the world is going in the direction that I think it's going, then the celebration of LGBTQ plus rights is not something that should only be focused on the month of June, but it should be something that we celebrate and advocate for every fucking day of the year. And right now, women's issues are under attack and gay rights are potentially right around the corner. So I'm really excited to finally be putting out this Pride-themed episode for you guys today And I hope to follow it up with a solo episode where I can speak more freely about my feelings and also the history around abortion rights and contraceptive rights as well. Before I make this intro any longer, I just want to give a huge hug to everybody out there that's listening, especially all of the women out there. I love you guys, and we are in this together now more than ever, and women's stories, especially the ones from history, can help us not only feel connected with each other, but help remind everybody what fucking power and strength we have behind us and have always had behind us that can hopefully help inspire us to fight now harder than we ever have. I love you guys. I'm here for you. The podcast is here for you. And I will see you on the other side. Hello, Lex. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Hello, Melissa. How are you? I am good. I am dandy. I am super excited because uh, today is going to be a very special podcast episode, not just because of the incredible theme that we're kicking off for June, mm-hmm. which hint, hint, Pride Month. Ayo. But also because you are joining me for my 100th episode what oh my god (laughs) oh what an honor oh my god isn't that crazy that's so exciting congratulations (laughs) what a milestone oh my god i'm i'm honored (laughs) i am just i'm like what do i do do i have to throw a party do i celebrate do i just announce it like how does this work how does 100 work I don't know. We haven't hit 100 yet, so I cannot <laughs> I cannot uh guide you through that, but I feel like it's it's such a I feel like 100 is where you're like, okay, now it's serious. <laughs> I know. know. I'm like it's like one of those things where you meet somebody new and you're like, mm-hmm. "Hey, I have a podcast." And they're like, "Oh, sick. Everyone has a podcast." You're like, "Well, no, I've actually been doing it for 4 years and I have 100 episodes." So, do you take me seriously yeah. yet? <laughs> yeah. Like no, no, no. Let me tell you how legit I am. I've made it to 100 in your face. <laughs> I know. 
It's been a long fucking ride to 100. But yeah, we made it. And not only are we celebrating 100, but we're celebrating Pride Month. Yes, we are. And we're celebrating two incredible people who have and are making a impact on Mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus community. Um, so yeah, we're just doing all the fucking rad things today. Yeah. Oh my God. This is, I'm, I'm so pumped. Like I was already excited to be back on the show, to be talking about these wonderful people. And now I'm like, I get to hype you up the whole time. I have so many questions for you, but we'll maybe, maybe at the end I'll be like, okay, what, what a hundred. Oh my God. But enough about me. How you been? How's the Peony podcast? What's going on in it's your world? It's good. We're good. Uh, we <laughs> we took like a, a hiatus and we were just like re-releasing um, like remasters and stuff. And then we were slowly coming back. We've kind of moved to like a bi-weekly schedule. But we're good because Jules is getting into more like screenwriting and uh, getting into films and and by films I mean like being a part of them. Um, and I, you and I were chatting off air. Uh, was recently let go from a healthcare job, but like in a way that I'm like, this is the universe being like, go find your art. So I'm getting back into acting and theater. So it's like there's a lot of um, transition happening with both of us, but it's like all for good stuff and all going towards the thing that we are. Like our dream, which is great. So it's been it's been kind of wild. I've yeah. gone through so many ranges of emotions of like, I'm so excited. Hell yeah. Oh my God, I'll never have a job again. And I will wind up like having to live in my family's like garage or something. Like, you know, all of those uh-huh. like the panic. Oh, um yeah. but mostly just like excited to commit to being creative as much as I can. Um, totally. So, yeah, that's kind of been us. Uh, I love it. I remember, too, the last time you were on the show, you were even talking about potentially switching to part-time. So it sounds yeah, like you're kind of getting plan. what you want. <laughs> that was the plan. And then they were like, instead of that plan, what if we just fired you? Um, and I was like, that, I guess, also works? I don't know. <laughs> It'll work out. I'll be fine. But it is like it's very um, it's one of those things. And I feel like you and I have talked about this where like even when you work in a corporate job where you're like, this is stable. This is predictable. This is like there's a level of comfort. It does not matter. Like they can decide on a whim. Nope. We're good. Uh, mm-hmm. See you later. Bye. Have a nice time. So it totally it's that thing of like when you're in a creative field, I think you kind of expect that more. Mm-hmm. But it's like it can happen in any totally. in any part of your life. Um, so yeah, I'm we'll see. But I'm right now I today I'm excited. <laughs> the yeah. other day I was like, oh no, what's happening? But today it's just like, uncer- right. uncertainty is always terrifying. Yeah. Where you're like what am I getting myself into? Yeah. Is this is this going to be okay? And at the end of the, the day, it's like, yeah, it'll be fine. So, you know, if anybody's casting for anything, hit me up. Uh, put me in your show. <laughs> but, well, and you know, I feel yeah. like, too, sometimes just as, like, human beings, we get so comfortable in our comfort that yep. sometimes you really need to be bucked off the horse to then be like, all right, I'm on the floor now. Yeah. What's my next move? Yeah, a swift kick in the butt yeah it's hard to take that next move when you're just still on the horse (laughs) 
Yeah. And that, like, honestly, for me, I am very much a creature of habit. Um, and I I think this makes sense for a lot of people, right? Like, you want stability. You want comfort. And those things are great, but it uh, it's sort of like at what cost? And for me, it's been having to put my dreams and the things I really care about on the back burner a lot and having to constantly make those sacrifices. And so now it's like I have an opportunity to bring those things to the forefront. The scary thing for me right now is the desire or the 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 impulse to run to the next like stable, comfortable mm-hmm. thing is very strong. Um, so it's like having to fight that impulse in for my own best interest so that's a it's a it's an interesting thing to kind of walk through but i'm very fortunate i've got like a lot of wonderful friends and i've got a good support network to help alleviate the panic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and be like you're fine it'll be fine totally um but yeah it's it feels a bit delayed because i feel like a lot of people you know during the pandemic went through this because so many people lost their jobs and i quite the opposite like wound up getting getting pulled into a new job still in healthcare but it like so I feel like I'm kind of on like this delayed Mm -hmm. timeline compared to a lot of other people so in that way it's it's also comforting because I have a lot of friends who are like if you wind up having to go on unemployment I can walk Mm -hmm. you through that like I can help you with all of Mm -hmm. those things the panic that you're feeling totally know that feeling like let's talk about it so yeah I think that's the comforting thing through any change is like there are a lot of people who know the pain and they're like, Mm -hmm. I got you. (laughs) Yes. And then at some point I can turn around and do the same for somebody Mm -hmm. else and be like, let me walk you through this, my sweet baby angel. Like, let us grow together. Exactly. I love it. So, all right. Well, what are we drinking? Like, drink into that. What are we drinking? Yeah, I am drinking. I went real basic today. Um, I am drinking a White Claw Surge Blackberry. Is that the the fucking like boozy ones? Yeah. Okay. It's 8% versus 5%. So like I do want to say like if you're drinking (laughs) wine, wine absolutely has more. That also being said, these things do catch you unawares. Like I've definitely had one and I'm like, I'm feeling good right now. Uh What? I've had half of this. Oh, no. Yep. Uh, so yes, it so, is. I didn't even know those existed. Mm-hmm. My father introduced me <laughs> to it, and I had introduced him to White Claw in general, like a year or two back when they were like booming. You know, uh-huh. um, I brought like a twelve pack to his house for like a pool party one day, and he's like, "What are these things? Like everybody here is drinking. You know, we're like chugging them like a motherfucker." Yep. And he tried one, and was like, "Oh, this is pretty good. Like mm-hmm. I like it." My dad has the fridge stocked with White Claws now and has been for the past several years. Like, oh, it's his thing. Amazing. And then he's the one that introduced me to the freaking boozy White Claw. Mm-hmm. Now he only drinks those. And I literally didn't even know they existed. And I just was at his house last Friday and he served me my first boozy White Claw. Ooh. There's another one. I think it's White Claw Surf. And it's like more tropical flavors. That one's a little bit more syrupy. So if you like really sweet stuff, mm-hmm. those are pretty good. Uh, they're also nice if you like want to add some tequila or vodka. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Drink. Not that you need to, but you can. So. Yeah. <laughs> Love this it. This is not sponsored by White Claw, by the way. <laughs> I know. Fuck you guys. Sponsor us already. <laughs> uh. 
I'm like so annoyed. I was just thinking about that before the recording where I'm like, I'm about to shout this company out again for the 10,000th time. <laughs> like, rude. <laughs> Give me my money. Uh-huh. For real. So I actually made a cocktail today. Oh, yes. I was going to ask. I like, I just was not in the wine mood. Mm-hmm. And it tasty. I, yeah, I'm like, it wasn't in the wine mood. We're coming into Memorial Day weekend. I feel mm-hmm. like it's cocktail time. I get a four-day weekend. Yeah. yeah, so like literally the party starts right now. I do not work tomorrow. <laughs> Amazing. Thank yeah. you for allowing me to celebrate this. Exactly. You. So I kicked it up a notch and <laughs> um, I am drinking such a bomb cocktail. I'd never had this before. I invented it 10 minutes before we hopped on the recording <laughs> and I highly recommend. Okay. So, Walk me through it. Vodka. Yes. Which I always buy the Kirkland vodka for $10 at Costco. Mm-hmm. It's like a handle. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Yep. And my mixer is my favorite beverage from Trader Joe's who Ooh. sponsor me already, you dicks. I'm Please. so tired of just promoting you endlessly. <laughs> it is their sparkling watermelon juice. Have oh, you had it? Oh my God. No, that sounds amazing. And I'm uh, going to Trader Joe's later, probably. Truly <laughs> phenomenal. It comes in a four pack. It's okay. just in like the um, unrefrigerated like juice section next yep. to like where the chips and snacks are. Yep. Um, there's also a strawberry one, which is equally as amazing. Ooh. This is so fucking good. And it literally tastes like they squeezed a fresh watermelon in and then just like added sparkling to it. Like this is truly like the freshest fruit juice I've I ever had. I am so jealous right now. It is I'm like, so good. That. And it's like a little mini can. It's really mm-hmm. cute. They're so good. They're so freaking good. Uh, hmm. Highly recommend the juice. So anyway, added okay. it to some vodka and then I yep. squeezed a lime in it. Yep. Um, And we're satisfied. That sounds <laughs> so refreshing and sounds so good. Oh my God. Okay. I'm excited to go to Trader Joe's later and be like, let me stock up on your watermelon juice, please. And thank you. It's just it's like, also like a beautiful color. I know that. Right? It's of. a beautiful color and you can't yeah. see probably, but this is my sparkly wine glass. Oh, it's so cute. I got it in my uh, Fab, Fab Fit, Fit Fun. Fun. Yes. I thought about getting those, but I think I went with the beach towel or the like picnic blanket. I went okay. with something else. Well, at first I was annoyed because they're plastic and I mm-hmm. didn't realize that. And I was like, oh, that's so lame. And then I was like, okay, wait, actually it's not because I like that it's plastic. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't have to worry about like breaking, breaking my it. glass. Uh huh. I always like put it on the ledge of my balcony, which like it, at any <laughs> moment it could fall over. So like, okay, now we aren't going to shatter glass all over the mm-hmm. floor. And also, I like to drink wine in the bathtub. So if it oh, were to slip yes. off the side, at least it's just like a floating plastic cup. So yep. I realize I do like this. And if you go to the beach or the park and you're day yep. drinking, now I have plastic wine glasses. Yep. That's I didn't a, uh, realize that they were going to be so handy. That's I I I love this like journey for you so much. Shout <laughs> out to Fabfit Fun. And I even put my little lime on the edge. It's like, so cute. You please tell me you took a photo of that. I like did. it's such a, okay. I was like I it's did. such a cute. It's such a cute drink. I know. I really killed it with my cocktails today. Yes. But yeah, I would say that this cocktail probably came out to a total of like three dollars. That is all we can ever hope for is cheap booze. Oh, my God. Right? And uh, good. And yeah. Good. 
Well, do you are you ready to dive in? Yes, let's do it. Okay, cool. So uh, June is Pride Month, and I mm-hmm. love to do a good monthly celebration. And it's so funny because you were the last time you were with me, we were celebrating Black History Month. Yep. Now we're celebrating Pride Month. Yeah. And Happy it's always Pride a good time. to all my fellow queers. AOA. Yes. Fuck yeah. And I'm stoked because uh, the woman that I'm covering today is somebody who's made a really huge impact on the world, on the progression of gay and lesbian LGBTQ rights. She has really changed the path. Like shit was not good and she made Mm -hmm. some remarkable moves to make it better so we have a lot to thank to our woman today and lastly she's a lesbian and i have not covered a ton of lesbians on the podcast and i always want to (laughs) yes so we're very excited about barbara giddings who is a prominent american activist for lgbtq plus equality and she made a, a pretty huge impact on the way society and psychiatry viewed human sexuality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also the amount of LGBT uh, literature that was available as a resource for people in the future. Very excited about Miss Barbara. She was a cool chick and she has a very interesting story. All right, so Barbara Giddings was born July 21st, 1932 in Vienna, Austria. Uh, she was there because her father was serving as a U.S. diplomat, but they eventually left Austria for Canada, where she grew up for most of her young childhood. While they were in Canada, her and her siblings attended Catholic schools, and Barbara became very immersed in Catholicism to the point that she actually would talk about wanting to become a nun when she grew up. Oh, oh boy. (laughs) How did that go, Barbara? We all know how that turned out. (laughs) So uh, her, so very involved in religion. Her family was very involved in religion. That was what she understood life to be as a young child. Mm -hmm. Um, And then her family ended up moving to the United States as World War II sort of broke out and they ended up settling in Wilmington, Delaware. So she spent the rest of her adolescence and the rest of her life in the United States. And when she was a young child, she was aware of her attraction to other girls. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that others were also aware of it without her knowing. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that is I don't want to be like, that's how it always goes. But like, I have a lot of friends that when they came out, their family was like, yeah, we know pumpkin. We were waiting (laughs) for you to figure it out. And like, no judgment. It's just like, Mm -hmm. I think people pick up on on your habits and your interests and and things about you sometimes before you do but more because it's like an outsider perspective and like you know but maybe you're trying to fight it internally and they're like i see it but totally barbara relatable absolutely well and also keep in mind that we're talking about the 1930s yeah not a friendly time 
it's not like so one she doesn't even know she doesn't have any frame of reference of what she's even thinking or feeling because there is no yeah. there's no words for it really there's no history there yet yeah it's you don't know yeah and the people that are catching on to her sexuality are not accepting in the slightest <laughs> yeah so this is where where barbara's at this is where oh poor little bad. barbara uh is figuring out her sexuality this is the era unfortunately she grew up in and it actually, uh, the first time she ever heard the word homosexual took place when she was in high school. And the reason why she heard this word is because her teacher was the one that introduced it to her when her teacher was rejecting her for a membership in the National Honor Society in high school. Even though Barbara was like a straight A student and an incredible like smart as shit incredible student uh her teacher had reservations about barbara's character mm-hmm. and she pulled her aside and let her know that she was not allowed to be part of the national honor society uh because of her homosexual inclinations and she didn't even know what that meant barbara didn't yeah. even know what, what what that even meant yeah so that's how she learned about the term homosexuality Then after high school, Barbara went on to attend Northwestern University and she developed a very close non-sexual friendship with another female student. And somehow, for some reason, this friendship prompted like rumors across the campus that the two were lesbians. And it led Barbara to start questioning like, Am I a lesbian? Like, what is what are these rumors that I'm hearing about me? Like, what is this? I'm confused what these rumors mean and why they're being said. And so she uh, basically was like, I want to understand what's going on with me and why people keep making these comments about me. Um, so she attempted to figure out or learn about sexuality in general And that led her to making the decision to visit a psychiatrist who confirmed Uh. to her that she was, in fact, homosexual and that he could, in fact, cure her. No, no. I that's where I was afraid this was going and I don't like it. Yes. And so during this experience her friend decided they should no longer be friends because she didn't like the rumors that were being spread so Barbara lost her friend all while she's having this insane epiphany about her sexual identity about who she is about needing to be cured and she's like in her very I think she's probably around like 17 or 18 at this time like very very young like probably first year of college kind of thing And so um, she didn't have money to afford regular visits to be cured by a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's a kid. She's like, doesn't even like have, she doesn't even make any money. So she went to her father for help. Oh, no. Um, And he basically told her like, I will not fork over any money for you to see the psychiatrist because there is no problems a psychiatrist can solve that a priest cannot. 
Oh, part of me, like, as you were saying that, like, part of me was like, yes, he'll be accepting and understanding, even though it's the 1930s. And then another part of me was like, no, it's going to be bad. And <laughs> gentle listeners, it was the latter. And I'm sad to say that. I mean, if our options are priest or psychiatrist, 1930s, it's not looking oh. good. Yeah. All right. So she didn't take her dad up on his offer. And instead, she's like, well, both those options suck. Um, mm-hmm. So my, I, instead, I'm going to resort to books. So she decided, I'm going to read. I'm going to go to the library. Yeah. I'm going to try and find books, literature, anything that I can find on the topic of sexuality, homosexuality, whatever it is that I'm trying to make sense of because mm-hmm. I need information and I'm not getting it. And she did in fact find books at the library during this time period, but they were not very helpful because yeah. there was a very tiny selection of them that were available in the libraries. And the ones that were available were medical books and they were oh, predominantly no. focused on gay men, yep. like nothing about women. They were all about gay men, and the books described these men as deviants, perverts, and abnormal. And they also claimed that homosexuals were unable to whistle and that they all liked the color green. Okay. (laughs) That's half true because I love the color green, (laughs) but I can whistle. So excuse me. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not a gay man. So maybe that's maybe that's part of it. What? Like what? That's insane. Okay. I also can't whistle, but (laughs) I'm I'm straight. That's such a, oh my God, uh, what? Okay. Just so weird. I mean, that just shows like Goofy. how fucking dumb these books were. A yeah. medical book being like all gays can't whistle and they all love green. Like that's the educational medical so information silly. that we're publishing and putting out to people. Like insane. That's, well, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so she basically just dove into research and read as much as she could that she could find. And she got like so heavily involved in this like hunt, this investigation to learn more about sexuality Mm -hmm. that it became like her 100 percent priority. And she began failing her college classes and eventually got kicked out of school. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And she actually was quoted to say, quote, my mission was not to get a general education, but to find out about myself and what my life would be like. So I stopped going to classes and started going to the library. (sighs) Babs, I love you. So when Barbara was 24 years old, she ended up traveling to California because she wanted to visit the office of what was called One Inc., And it was an early homophile organization that dedicated itself to providing support to homosexuals in the United States. And she ended up meeting a lesbian couple named Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. And they were the co-founders of an organization called Daughters of Belitis. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. I don't even know because even Barbara herself, like the minute she went to this first meeting and met them was like, how the fuck do you say this? (laughs) Like, the name is so confusing. We don't know how it's pronounced or how it's spelled. Like, that was the first thing she said to them. (laughs) Um, So I think it's called Belitis. I'm just going to call it 
Daughters of Belitis. I'm just going to call it the DOB because that's what there they have. I, I have to say it so many times in this podcast that the DOB <laughs> is way easier than Daughters of Belitis. Yep. Um. So so Phyllis and Dell were uh, this couple in San Francisco. They founded the DOB and it was the first lesbian civil and political rights organization in the United States. And they created it because they wanted to give women a place to meet without having to be at a lesbian bar, which was constant subject of harassment, Mm. police raids, Mm -hmm. you know, violence. And so that was typically where people were meeting and hanging out and like expressing themselves and living authentically, but bars became a hit spot. So they were like, let's create these organizations, these clubs, and it will be a place for us to meet, interact, be ourselves where we're kind of like secretly hidden and not like under direct target. So that's kind of how the, these organizations came about. But the thing specifically about DOB that I read about was it was definitely way more mellow than future like lgbt activist groups like things got pretty like wild in the future in the 60s you know like with activism and stonewall and stuff like that and riots these people the dob women were very low-key they were not trying to ruffle many feathers they were not trying to cause chaos all they were really trying to do was create a safe space for them, mm-hmm. for women to either meet, hang out, connect, but also a space where closeted women could come and see what the situation was all about and not, not feel like they were going to be outed. And eventually, once they were, you know, doing more things in the public, they weren't screaming from the rooftops like, we're gay, accept us. They were more mm-hmm. interested in trying to show heterosexual people that homosexuals are no different than you we're just an average human being in the world and we're not here to like bash windows or like you know stand at city hall and like burn down the trees like we just want to hang out and have a conversation and we know you hate us and like we aren't even mad about it like we're just trying to be cool and shake and like have the peace yeah and that was kind of their vibe for a very very long time Um, Even when other organizations kind of developed and were a little bit more cutthroat, like, no, we're fucking tired and now we're pissed. Like, they kind of never got to that place. So they've kind of been categorized a little bit more mellow, tame. I don't I don't I don't know the exact term that could be used, but passive, passive. That's the one. And so Barbara got involved with the DOB. This was kind Mm -hmm. of her introduction into like a first wave of activism and um, she ended up making friends with Phyllis and Dell, the couple who founded it. And eventually, uh, a few years after they met, the two of them asked Barbara if she would be interested in starting her own DOB chapter in New York City. And mm. she was like, hells yes, I'm down. And so she started the first New York-based, East Coast-based DOB group. And she was the president of it from 1958 until 1961. During her presidency, she put on lots of meetings. And the interesting thing is that during these meetings, they often invited doctors, psychiatrists, ministers, and attorneys and allowed them to speak at their meetings, 
even though what they were speaking on was rude and fucked up and so horrible to the women in the room in the DOB. And this sounds weird and it doesn't make sense. (laughs) But later in life, Barbara basically like explained what this was all about, like why Mm -hmm. they basically created a pedestal and allowed these fucking assholes to come in and talk shit. And she basically said that like when the DOB began and it was like in its original days, they really urged their members to not upset the mainstream. Like they did not want to piss off the mainstream heterosexual society because they believed that integrating with them would allow for an acceptance because it would show them that gay and lesbian people were not dramatically different from themselves. So I think they were like coming from this place of like being the bigger person, Yeah, you know? So when these people would show up and be like, you're mentally ill, you belong in like a psych ward, like you're fucking disgusting. They never fought back or argued. They allowed them, respected them to say what they had to say and just kindly were like, thank you for your time. Like, it's so nice to meet you. This is what we're doing over here. This is why we're doing it. This is why it's important. And like, thank you for at least taking the time to come by. (laughs) So like, good Lord, I know. I don't know how they fucking did it, but um, couldn't be me. It couldn't be me. <laughs> I would be throwing bottles from the back row. Like, yeah, it would not be good. Um, but she was also quoted to say when she was like when she was interviewed one day down the line about this, she said, quote, at first we were so grateful to just have people, anybody mm. pay attention to us that we listened to and accepted everything they said, no matter how bad it was. Anything that helped to break the silence, no matter how silly or foolish it may look to us today, was important at the time. I joined the movement in 1958 when the subject of homosexuality was still in complete silence. There were no radio talk shows or TV documentaries. In all of the United States, there were maybe a half a dozen groups, 200 people active at all. So I think, like, really, they were just trying to bring awareness. Mm -hmm. They were trying to just, like, raise the flag of, like, we're here and we live. We're not trying to fucking, you know, destroy anybody's lives. We're just actually trying to just live ours. And we know you don't like us. And, like, that's fine. Like, you you can have that opinion. But, like, come chill with us and see how normal we are. Yeah. We're just like you. And I think just, like, having that happen was was groundbreaking because it wasn't happening. I think that just like that wasn't happening in general. So they were like, the fact that we're even doing this is like making progress, basically. Yeah. And while she was running uh, as president, she was also working a full time job. So she worked in a clerical position and she spent like 10 years uh, as a mimograph operator for an architectural firm. I think it was like a printing press type Mm -hmm. of machine. Um, So she had a full-time job and was basically running president DOB meetings twice, you know, a month, like doing all kinds of shit. And she often had to work overtime at her job while simultaneously being responsible for writing and editing the DOB's newsletter that went out to 150 people. So I know I was like, wow, she sounds like a podcaster. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ew. And because she was working overtime, she'd often have to do some of her DOB-related work on the clock at her place of employment. Definitely sounds like a podcast. (laughs) 
hundred percent. But then one day Barbara got caught because she was kind of like not thinking too smart (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. made a very amateur error where she basically was using the company's envelopes to mail her newsletter out and she was covering the firm's name with a sticker. No. And then some dick basically like took the sticker off one day and saw that it was like a printing press company and uh-huh. like called them or reached out to them to be like yo uh just in case you didn't know there's a newsletter addressing lesbianism that's being distributed on your company envelopes <laughs> so oh, no. daisy yeah so she got caught and she was certain that she was going to be fired But then it turned out her boss, who was a woman, had stated very cryptically that she was familiar with the topic, having served in the armed forces. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Oh. So uh, it wasn't new to her, the lesbianism. Mm -hmm. Yep. She's familiar. (laughs) Yes. God bless. Yes. So she gave Barbara a pass and did not fire her, but was like, be a little careful moving forward. And maybe <laughs> buy your own envelopes next yeah, time. Right. So uh she got she was in the clear. And then after years of serving as the president of the DOB, she ended up passing the torch over to a new president. Uh, and she ended up focusing her time on editing the organization's magazine, which was called The Ladder. And so her old friends, Phyllis and Dell, the original founding members of the DOB, were the previous editors of the magazine, and they passed the torch over to Barbara, and they were very serious about the magazine being, like, not political in the slightest. Because, again, remember, they're not trying to piss anybody off or ruffle any feathers. They're hypersensitive on being as PC as they can be, and just, like, hope to God they'll be accepted with kindness. Mm. And... Barbara took over the magazine and began running it in that like same light for a while until she attended a 1963 convention of the nearly or I'm sorry, convention of the newly formed East Coast homophile organizations where a Dr. Albert Ellis spoke to the audience claiming that, quote, the exclusive homosexual was a psychopath, a doctor. And again, remember, doctors were invited to these meetings and allowed on stage to make these statements and no one fought them on it Mm -hmm. or argued, really. Um, However, at this convention, uh, there was a gay activist named Frank Kameni, Kameni, Mm -hmm. and he took the stage after that doctor spoke and basically made like a huge impact on Barbara and completely changed the fucking game for her moving forward throughout her life because he basically went up on the stage and argued the point that it's completely useless to try to find cures and causes for homosexuality since there is no valid evidence that it is an illness. There we go. There we go. There we go. And for whatever reason, that speech just like completely switched everything for Barbara she began looking at things totally different and decided she was done playing safe I really think 
because she'd been hearing her entire life that it was an illness. And I think at yeah. that point, you just believe it is. And so yeah. you kind of start operating in this space of like, well, I'm ill, but that's okay. And let's just figure out how to live life in happiness and peace and harmony living as an ill person. Right. And I think that's why the DOB allowed doctors and psychiatrists to speak because I think they might have also sort of just believed that they were because they yeah. had no other reason to believe otherwise. It was being said by all the doctors and psychiatrists. It was written in all the books that existed. Like yeah. for them to think differently would have been just a radical thing that they just thought in their heads. But all the like physical evidence provided by experts in the field was saying different. Mm hmm. So Barbara at this point was like, maybe I'm actually not ill. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Hold on. Yeah. Because she was like, well, there actually is no evidence that I'm ill. It's just a hearsay thing. So people are just uncomfortable with what they don't know and don't understand. So they've decided that there's something wrong with me when there's not. Yeah. Yeah. So she, everything switched for her and she started immediately to implement changes in the latter magazine that was owned by the DOB, who's a very PC organization and is not trying to piss anybody off. Um, And the first changes that she made was by adding under the title, the latter, like in subtitle under it, it said a lesbian review. So she threw that subtitle in there. And she also replaced um, these, like, line drawings that they had on the cover. They're, like, cartoon figures with actual photos of lesbians. Yes. (laughs) So, like, pretty big change for the Ladder magazine. And then she started to distribute the Ladder magazine in six bookstores in New York and Philadelphia, where one of the bookstores within the Greenwich Village neighborhood uh, ended up displaying it like in the window and it ended up selling 100 copies in the first month. Wow. So just even promoting wow. it and putting visibility to it out there. Um, and I think Greenwich Village was a very gay community. It still is. I think, yeah. Right. Okay. I've never been to New York, but like from my Stonewall memories, I think Stonewall's in Greenwich Village. Maybe. Uh, yes, I believe so. It's like right. Yes, it's part of Greenwich Village. But yeah, that's like kind of like the West Hollywood of mm-hmm. of New York. Yeah. The best so way I can describe it. <laughs> within that neighborhood, it was a mm-hmm. hit. <laughs> yeah. And then the focus of the magazine shifted to tackling more controversial issues with intent to spark debate, which was not what the DOB ever did. And Barbara was like, well, shit's changing, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. Yes. I'm tired. I'm fucking over this. And so she began printing articles, one like more, I guess, debate-ish articles or triggering articles, controversial articles, one titled I Hate Women, which basically remarked on women who are politically apathetic. Mm. And another article that was titled To Act or To Teach, which was like the debate, the back and forth debate as to whether it was more effective to educate the public or to take political action. Mm -hmm. So things were really spicing up in the newsletter. She was behind the change. And then this kind of like put her straight into like actual on the ground activism. So she went on to participate in many of the earliest LGBT 
actions in the United States. In 1965, she marched in the first gay picket lines at the White House, the U.S. State Department, and at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And they were protesting the federal government's policy on discrimination of homosexuals, like, in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So she was at these pickets holding a sign that read, quote, sexual preference is irrelevant to federal employment. Yep. Has nothing to do with how you perform in the workplace. It doesn't matter. It's none of your business. Thank you. (laughs) Well, she had to show up to the White House to let them know. Of course. And she even recalled from this experience, she was quoted to say, I remember a man said to his kids, hold your noses. It's dirty here. And there was a woman dragging a string of kids behind her who said very angrily to her and the group of picketers, quote, you should all be married and have children like me. Look, just because you're bitter and hate your life doesn't mean I have to. (laughs) I know. With your 10,000 kids, no birth control and a hideous drunk husband. If that's the life that you want, go live it. But like, don't take it out on people who are not subscribed to that lifestyle. Right. Not our problem. No, it's not our problem. Not. And so at these pickets, they were distributing leaflets to the passerbyers that basically described why they were picketing, mm-hmm. uh, which surprised a lot of people who were totally unaware that gays and lesbians were getting fired and like mm. so easily. Yeah. Not just getting fired, but like that, like for any yeah. reason that could come up. And Barbara also remembers during this time that, like, even them showing up and doing that and distributing this stuff was super risky. They were scared out of their fucking minds, like, terrified there while they were doing it. And uh, because picketing, like, wasn't a popular tactic at this time, like, it wasn't happening yet. Like, it wasn't, like, a thing. Yeah. Or maybe it was, like, just beginning. It was just, like, a new form of activism. So, um. It, it was pretty outlandish. And she said that even a lot of other gay people thought it was outlandish. Like, what are you guys doing out there? Yeah. Which is wild. But not that wild because I know, too, with, like, uh, the women's suffrage movement, there were so many women that were opposed of women's suffrage. And, like, yeah. when there were picketers out there doing what they were doing, there were women at home that were like, fuck those people. Like, fuck yeah. those women. Well, and... Feel free to cut this out. I don't know how political you want to get, but like I think about in these past elections, especially in 2020 and in 2016, like the percentage of specifically white women who voted against their own interests by supporting Donald Trump, like that man is not on your side. He's no. never been on your side. And so you're but you're supporting him because the thing is, and there's so many articles about this and there's so many you know, activists and writers who've spoken more eloquently about this. But the thing is, especially for white women, you have power when you hitch your wagon to a white man. And when you support white men, you get to hide behind that power and it gives you this like level of it it puts you in a a different hierarchy. And I think it's the same with the women's suffrage, uh, like the women's suffrage movement, right? Like if I am, as long as I'm married and that's Mm -hmm. the way I have power. And so as long as I'm not um, fighting against those societal norms, I have power. And it is infuriating because totally 
you're you're voting against your you're fighting against your own best interest at the end of it. I mean, anyway. even with abortion as well. Yes, the yeah. women that don't support, <laughs> like, yeah, a woman's right to choose like that. Yeah. Like, I will like I will fucking go to war for that shit. Yeah, it. I mean, this is a whole, I know, a downward spiral that we can passionately fall down. <laughs> And I will, um, but I don't want to veer us too far, of course. But like, yeah, like it is wild to me how much people vote or they they stand for something that is actively against their own rights or their wild own good. Yes, it's insane to me. I'm like, what? Yeah, they like Yikes. aren't even aware of the fact that they're part of this that they're against. Uh huh. Yeah, like you fall into this category. What? <sighs> Yeah, yeah. Well, so next up. <laughs> so um, from 1965 to 1969, Barbara and Frank Kameni, Kameni, the same man who like had that, she had that yep. epiphany from when he was on stage. I'm just going to call him Frank because I talk about him a few more yeah. times. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. That's okay. Him and her ended up leading a series so during that time period of 65 to 69 they led an annual picketed protest they called Mm -hmm. the annual reminder (laughs) by the way we're coming back a year later to remind you the same fucking shit (laughs) and uh they did that every single year at the exact same locations the white house wherever else I, i named and um they did that for several years until the Stonewall riots took place in June 1969. And after the riots happened, the annual gay pride parade that commemorated the riots pretty much took over like all LGBTQ public activism after that. And so kind of like everything got merged into one. So they weren't, they weren't the only people that were doing things. It like blew up basically Mm -hmm. at that point. And she, Barbara, ended up getting, like, kicked out of the DOB. They, like, let her yeah. go um, because she was creating too many issues for this very quiet, passive group. Mm-hmm. With her magazine, with the activism, it was too much. So they basically let her go. And she didn't really give a fuck because she was always going to be on to bigger and better things. And it turned out she was because in the 1970s, she went back to doing what it was that she loved the absolute most. And that was searching for books and libraries. (laughs) (laughs) The OG Hermione. (laughs) She'd been doing that shit since she was a young kid when she was only in high school. And now, you know, it's so many years later and she's thinking like, oh, yeah, where are we at with the books? It's been like Mm -hmm. 20 years. Have we made progress? Mm -hmm. So she started searching, searching for literary resources that addressed homosexuality in a positive and supportive way. Um, As we know, there weren't many. And she ended up finding like her home, her people in 1970, when a gay group emerged out of the American Library Association, and it was the first gay caucus in the professional association, and Barbara ended up becoming like the coordinator of it in 1971. So she was in with the library peeps doing what she loved. And then like another year after that, Barbara and again, her friend Frank ended up organizing a discussion with the American Psychiatric Association. And they called this discussion uh, psychiatry, 
friend or foe to homosexuals. And it was basically a panel of psychiatrists who were there to literally discuss homosexuality. When they curated this panel of psychiatrists, Barbara realized that not one of the psychiatrists was homosexual. It was a panel of all heterosexual psychiatrists. And she's like, well, this doesn't fucking make sense. They're just going to say what we've been hearing our whole lives. Like, we need to get, like, um, a fair group of psychiatrists here to have an actual real discussion. Because if they all just agreeing on the same thing, like, what's the point? We need to have, like, a debate and argument. So she went on the hunt to basically... Uh, find a homosexual psychiatrist and she wrote letters she made phone calls she was like hunting all around the country to find anybody who was gay and willing to discuss this matter she eventually found somebody who agreed to appear on the panel as long as he was in a disguise and had a a voice distorting microphone so he literally had to be in hiding in order to do this And he uh, called himself Dr. H. Anonymous, but it turned out uh, this man was named John E. Fryer, Mm -hmm. and he basically discussed on the panel how he was forced to be closeted while practicing psychiatry. And they had a, like, really incredible debate. In addition to the bait, Barbara ended up reading out loud letters from other psychiatrists who she had solicited to when she was reaching out, but who declined to appear Mm -hmm. because they were too afraid to be like outed. Uh, But they had agreed to like send in letters to like speak their truth. So she was able to like read off like all these other letters from other gay psychiatrists. And apparently the entire event ended up being like incredibly transformative and groundbreaking for cha- for change and then a couple years later in 1973 homosexuality was removed from the diagnostic and statistical manual as a mental disorder yep 1973 my brother my older brother was born in 1973 that is not that long ago no it is insane it is insane Ugh. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. And when it was removed as a mental disorder, Barbara celebrated by being photographed with the Philadelphia newspaper. And the headline said, quote, 20 million homosexuals gained instant cure by being freed from the mental <sighs> disorder. I'm emotional. I know. It's fine. Isn't that the <laughs> best thing that could be said, though? Yeah. It, They're like... finally cured when all of you fucking dicks took them off the psychopath list. Like, yeah. Yeah. Insanity. Like, that's the cure. Not being discriminated against and being told you're a psychopath when you're not. Yeah. Like, it. I can't even imagine the kind of like, weight or freedom that you feel in that moment when the scientific community goes hey there's actually nothing wrong with you for having those sexual attractions that you've been feeling probably your whole life like there's nothing wrong with you yeah my god so great so uh, barbara spent 
the next 16 years working with libraries and campaigning to get positive gay and lesbian themed materials into libraries and to eliminate censorship and also job description. So these were her like the biggest things that she was passionate about and working on. And after a lifetime of commitment to the LGBT civil rights movement, Barbara retired to an assisted living facility in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, with her partner of 46 years. Her name was Kay Tobin Lawson. And then Barbara passed away uh, February 18th, 2007, after a long battle with breast cancer. She was 74 years old. But some really cool things that have occurred in Barbara's life, awards, recognitions that she's got. In 2001, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation honored her by bestowing her the first Barbara Giddings Award, highlighting her dedication to activist work. That same year, the Free Library of Philadelphia announced its Barbara Giddings collection of books dedicated to gay and lesbian issues. There are more than 2,000 items in the collection, which is wow. the second largest gay and lesbian collection of books in the United States outside of the San Francisco Public Library. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's Barbara's collection. That's amazing. <laughs> right? That's amazing. I know. Oh, my God. Um, And then in 2003, the American Library Association rewarded her with its highest tribute, a lifetime honorary membership. Fortunately, she died a few years later, Um, but at least she got got that. And then in 2006, her and Frank Kamini received the first John E. Fryer MD Award from the American Psychiatric Association. And the award goes to people who have made a significant impact on the mental health of gays and lesbians. Oh. (laughs) And then in 2019, she was one of the inaugural 15 American pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes inducted into the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument in New York City's Stonewall Inn. That's amazing. So she definitely left the earth with so much fucking recognition recognition and thankfulness and honor which of course she deserved and and on a quote which i love to do she was quoted to say equality means more than passing laws the struggle is really one in the hearts and minds of the community where it really counts babs <sighs> Uh, Babs getting. Oh, thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I think it was last year when I learned that like it wasn't until 1973 when like uh, homosexuality was removed from the DSM as a mental disorder, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? Right. So I, I don't know, just. Incredibly thankful for people like her and Frank who just like fought to totally as best as they could to normalize homosexuality. I know. And I just think it's so beautiful that like what Barbara needed as a child, I mean, other than support system from friends and family, yeah, was a resource. 
And she just didn't have that. And when she went to the libraries to read books, she had nothing. And so she spent most of her life creating that. Yeah. For the people that would come after her. Yeah. And I like she succeeded. (laughs) Like, I just think that's so incredible to like make that kind of impact on the American freaking whatever library association. Like, that's wild. Yeah. And also the psych psychiatric stuff like that's huge huge and I wonder like how many of those psychiatrists maybe not right out the gate but like felt more comfortable not necessarily being out but maybe starting to express themselves a little bit more because it's still really hard uh not as hard as it used to be but like in terms of finding a psychiatrist and or a psychologist who is part of the gay community like as a patient trying to find that can be really difficult so i can only imagine you know how hard it was in the 70s to find that i i just wonder like how many psychiatrists were a little bit more comfortable being open about their sexuality sexuality at least with their patients that needed it you know totally um yeah that's Praise the Lord that Barbara helped get that turned yeah, around. Truly. Oh, well, that's oh, our boy. Barbara getting. Uh, Thank you for that. That was of amazing. Of course. Uh, uh, who do you got? Who do you got? Yeah. So I'm very excited about this. I will preface a little bit. I'm not going to go too much into this person's um, like personal life. One, they're a pretty private person. They are still alive. Um, but I'm excited to talk about a very like notable piece of art that they have gifted us with so i am trying to get my screen to minimize appropriately so i can still see you but also can see my notes okay (laughs) um so today i am talking about comedian actor and writer hannah gadsby Love it. Uh, who I adore. And if you are familiar with Hannah's name, uh, she in, two, in 2018 released Nanette, which is her stand up special that was released on Netflix. And kind of like, I remember, and Nanette is the thing that sort of put her um, in, in like the American pop cultural realm. Prior to that, Hannah was mostly known in, like, Australia and the UK. But I remember, like, it felt like overnight, suddenly everybody was talking about Hannah Gadsby. And it was like, mm-hmm. what is happening? And there's a reason for that. Her her special really breaks the mold. Um, so I'm going to dive into Hannah a little bit. Yeah. So Hannah uh, was born in 1978 in Tasmania, which is an island state uh, in this part of Australia. It's like... She describes it as the island that's at the ass end of Australia. Um, It's a very small island. Uh Uh, She's the youngest of five children, and she grew up in um, Smithton, which is a small, remote town in the northwest coast of Tasmania. It is also considered the Bible Belt of Tasmania, um, which will unfortunately make it increasingly difficult for Hannah to come to terms with her sexuality and then to feel comfortable enough to come out to her family, um, especially because in Tasmania in particular, and I think in Australia, but I know for sure in Tasmania, homosexuality was illegal until 1997. 
in Tasmania? In Tasmania until 1997. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you? What does that even mean? It's illegal. Like, you can go to jail. Yep. You if could, somebody knows, you could go to prison for being a homosexual. And in the area in the town that Hannah grew up in, seventy percent of people believed that homosexuality was a crime, was punishable by by like criminal means, like throw your ass in jail for being gay. So growing up in that kind of culture, uh, she really struggled with her sexuality and internalized a lot. Like she was homophobic and internalized mm-hmm. a lot of that homophobia for totally. a very long time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And she she talks about that a lot in the special of like struggling with that. And, you know, how do you come to terms with that? And feeling like, how can you have pride in in being gay when all you feel is shame? Mm-hmm. So in 2003, she graduated from Australia National University with a bachelor's in art history, which has since become like a huge staple in her comedy. She's probably like one of my favorite things or the jokes that she ties in about like Vincent van Gogh and mental mental illness and how she links these things together and highlights how men in power, like Picasso is a great example, right? You think of Picasso, you think of the inventor of cubism and what he's done for the art world, but he was a huge misogynist. Mm -hmm. Um, When he was 42, he, I'm not sure if he forced this woman to have, not even woman, girl to have sex with him, but he had a sexual relationship with a 17 year old. So he's a pedophile and he's just a raging misogynist. But she she talks about that like, but we don't think about that with Picasso, right? We say separate the art from the artist. But how can you when when if you were to go like, hey, look at this uh, Cubist painting. You, that's not how you introduce it. You go, I have a Picasso, right? Totally. Like his name is tied to it. That's yeah. the thing you're bragging about. You're not bragging about the art. You're bragging about the person who created the art. So. Mm-hmm. So this became a huge staple in her comedy. And initially, um, she wanted to go into art history, had a plan to, like, I believe, work in galleries. Uh, She worked in bookshops. But then in 2006, she began her career in comedy while she was visiting her sister in Adelaide. She entered the Raw Comedy Festival and wound up winning the national prize, which when she won that, what happened is she was sent to – a competition at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and the name of the competition was So You Think You're Funny, and she took second prize. Oh, and, shit. Right? And, like, the Edinburgh uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is huge. It is massive. So to go from, like, winning this national and then to take second prize at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, that's huge. She's also – so not only is she a comedian, she's also a writer and a an actor – in Australia, she's very well known for her roles in shows like Adam Hills Tonight. And then she also co-wrote and starred in um, the show Please Like Me, where she portrays a fictionalized version of herself. So she was huge in Australia, uh, mm-hmm. fairly well known in the United Kingdom. It wouldn't be until 2018 when she would finally break into American pop culture with her comedy special, The Net. And... Nanette is incredibly unique. Have you seen it, Melissa? I haven't. It's fantastic. I highly recommend you go watch it. I will say, have a box of tissues ready. Um, oh, no. 
<laughs> because it is and and the thing with Nanette is in, it did receive a lot of it received a lot of praise and also a lot of criticism of like, is this even a comedy special? So there were a lot of people who were like, it's not a comedy special. It's something else. I don't know what to call it, but it's amazing. And then there were a lot of people, a lot of straight white men who criticized it for not being a comedy special because it it has jokes. I, you know, it kind of also has this feeling of I don't want to say a TED talk, but it gets very vulnerable and it mm-hmm. gets very serious and it ends on a very, I don't even want to say heavy, but like a very vulnerable and honest note. And so there were a lot of people who were like, this isn't comedy. Like that you're, you're leaving your audience thinking and like being challenged. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't what comedy's about, which, uh, okay, sure. It can be anything, right? Yeah. A comedian can have their own style of comedy. Right. And I would like as somebody who's like not to be like, I am obviously the be all end all of comedy. But as somebody who has studied improv and has studied acting since I was eight years old and is like a fan of comedy, I would call it a comedy special. I would say it breaks the mold. And that is what is so beautiful about it, because one of the things that she keeps going back to throughout the special is that like. And I don't think she ever directly says it. I rewatched it a little bit earlier today, but um, I don't think she ever directly says it. But something that like for me personally, I studied at the Second City in Hollywood. And one of the first things that they tell you is comedy is always about punching up at the people with power, never punching down at the people, especially if they're in marginalized groups. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't have power, no one should be making fun of you like Mm -hmm. Which kind of ties into a lot of predominant male comedians right now who are releasing edgy specials where they're making fun of transgender folks and they are making fun of women and people of color. And those are not the people that you make fun of. You make fun of the politicians who have all of this power and do fucking nothing with it. Like, that's what comedy is about, because it's supposed to be an equalizer amongst people who have power and people who don't. Mm. And... That's one of the things that I think like Nanette so beautifully does is not only does it call those people out, but then it it really punches up at them. But it also breaks down of like why what they are saying and what they are doing and why people who have the power punching down at people who don't is so dangerous and why it it cannot be tolerated. And so she's really calling people out without really using their names. Well, there is a section where she calls out a couple of people by name, but she's making a point of like, we cannot keep accepting this. Like, Mm -hmm. we have to challenge ourselves. We have to move beyond that. And so I think that kind of call out, that like very pointed call out is where a lot of people who were personally wounded by that, which like if you're wounded by her being like, hey, don't be an asshole. Maybe you need to self-reflect a little bit. But uh, so a lot of people, I think that's why they called it like, and said, like, this isn't stand-up, yeah. especially because I believe she won a few awards for it. And so uh-huh. people that were up against her were like, well, this isn't even comedy. And it's like, yes, it is. You're just mad that she was maybe a little bit more clever than you. But then a lot of people were saying, this isn't comedy, and it's wonderful that it's not. It's wonderful that it doesn't follow the typical structure of a stand-up act because it's actually mm-hmm doing something and it's doing totally to you so wonderful um so it's become wildly iconic because of how it calls out its own format 
and how it calls out men in power, how they punch down and not up. And it also is very much a rallying cry for herself. So she goes into a lot of like, she talks about how there's this really in sort of how she gently opens up the conversation about being queer and finding your own identity. So you know, for a long time, she was very much in the closet and she was struggling with internalized homophobia. Um, and she has this bit about watching the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras parade, which is Australia's like biggest pride parade. Mm-hmm. And so she's watching this and she's seeing a lot of very out and loud and proud, you know, gay men and women and non-binary folks and everybody's celebrating and it's this huge thing. And she's kind of like, okay, but what about the quiet gaze? Like, where do we go? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, And I think, but it touches on something where it's like, if you feel like you are queer, but you don't fit into the mold that you see portrayed, like, are you queer? Do you actually belong in that space? And it sort of leads itself into this conversation of like, how it takes you maybe a little bit longer to come to terms with your own sexuality because not only is there rampant homophobia in her hometown, but like if you don't have, if you feel like you have maybe a unique queer experience or you don't fit into the stereotype Mm -hmm. of what the queer experience is, it it becomes harder to find your own identity and to find Mm -hmm. that community, that smaller community within the greater community. Um, You know what? I am so sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I just realized the moment you said that, that I skipped a part of Barbara's story. No. That is so in. relevant to what you just yes. said. And yes. I don't know how Do the it. fuck I skipped this because I know <laughs> I wrote it in my damn notes. One thing that I somehow didn't mention that it ties exactly to what you just said was that when Barbara moved to Philadelphia and uh, from her hometown after she got kicked out of college. And while she was there, she started diving into like figuring out her sexuality. Mm-hmm. And what she did was she dressed in as a man yep. and took trains to New York City to attend gay bars as a, in drag, basically, wow. to introduce herself to the gay community and the gay scene. Uh-huh. Because what she understood as lesbians during the time was that you were either butch or yep. you were feminine. Yep. And she said that she did not connect to makeup and high heels. So she assumed she had to be butch. And she didn't know any better than to literally dress up as like a boy, like a man. Yeah. And she went basically in drag dressed as a man and was partying at gay bars. Yeah. And I feel like that's the situation where she didn't know where she fit in. Yeah. Because she didn't think of herself as butch or femme, but she definitely wasn't femme. So she's like, I guess I can only be butch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's it's so fascinating, like even within the queer community, like. So I, not to make this super personal, but to get kind of personal. So I'm bisexual and it took me a really long time to come to terms with that. It wasn't until like maybe two or three years ago where I was like, oh, this, and I kind of always knew, but like, I, I just, I was like, I don't fit into the stereotype of being bisexual or, you know, I like, it, it took a long time to kind of like piece things together for me. And then when I came out, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, I thought you just were. And like... <laughs> You knew that. And I just never questioned it. I was like, oh, okay. What? Like, what? 
But then there is that like kind of finding yourself in that of like if you don't fit into the mold of being super butch and if you don't fit into it of being super femme and then okay maybe it's more of a not necessarily non-binary but like a gender fluid space but then you're not androgynous Mm -hmm. enough to be non-binary like it's this it's this whole thing and there's a lot of especially being bisexual like there's a lot of biphobia not only from like a heterosexual community but from the queer community as well of like Mm -hmm. Why don't you just pick one? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, bisexuality is kind of seen as like, I, I think totally. Margaret Cho explained it as like, it's the layover to your final mm-hmm. destination is the way it's viewed. But it is, it's wild how much like prejudice there is even within the queer community, especially if you don't have the words to describe it. And how how much so much of that can even just be self-imposed because mm-hmm. you don't have the language for it. Totally. And so when you find the language, you're like, Oh, okay. There is there is something and I I don't have to be one or the other. I can kind of blend it and find my own thing. But um yeah, that like finding the right words can be really difficult and it can be a very like lonely journey. So I can only imagine like what Babs was going through. Like I'm just going to dress as a man and see if this this makes sense, right? <laughs> no, you don't need to if you don't want to, but uh. yeah. Especially with, like, lesbians, and this kind of ties in with, like, with Hannah, or I, it rather, I, she never explicitly says it, but, like, she kind of, like, I think thinly hints at it, but with lesbians, especially throughout history, like, how many times have lesbians just been, like, and these two women who lived together for 40 years, and they were the best of friends, and you're, like, they're gay. <laughs> oh, they no. They never they married. Ha- you know, what? have you ever heard the Boston marriages terminology? No. Oh, my God. So... In college, as a sociology major, I uh, my special my focus was sexuality studies, so I took uh-huh. more fucking sex classes than you could ever imagine, gender identity, all the above. But mm-hmm. we learned about this term called Boston marriages. There was women that a long fucking time ago would end up just like living together, like whether mm-hmm. they had husbands that had passed away early or they never got married or it was their best friend. They just like cohabitated and they called them Boston marriages. And basically they were se- heterosexual women that just lived together as friends, but they were not. Uh huh. And they like created a term for it. And I don't know why. I just looked it up. So a Boston marriage was historically the cohabitation of two wealthy women independent of financial support from a man. The term has been or the term is said to have been in use in New England in the late 19th and early 20th century. Some of these relationships were romantic in nature and might now be considered a lesbian relationship. Others were not. There you go. Yeah. But it, it like for so much and like Hannah goes into this like. I think for such a long time, and especially with the not that lesbians and, you know, other people part of the alphabet mafia haven't been persecuted against, but for such a long time, gay men specifically were the ones that were being targeted, right? Like, I think Hannah has this joke where she's like, something about anal sex, like, that's where the devil comes to get you, you know? Like, so they tend to be at the forefront when you think about the LGBTQIA plus movement and... um. And that fight for equality. And also, you know, 
part of that, I think, too, especially more in modern times, is during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, it was primarily gay men that were dying from it. So they, Mm -hmm. again, were sort of at that forefront. But so I think, like, for her, it was harder to find the language because when it came to being homosexual, really all she knew was gay men. And she's like, well, I'm not that. Um, And then again, lesbians were never really the point of conversation because it was like, oh, well, they don't really exist you know like it it was and i think even even to this day well no it's even to this day like lesbians in a lot of ways are sort of written off right like and i think women in general if your sexuality is not heteronormative if you're a lesbian like oh well just wait until you write the meet the right man and he can totally yeah like what totally and then bisexual women it's super hypersexualized or at least in you know a lot of men's eyes it's hypersexualized yeah. they're like oh that means we can have a three way exactly <laughs> and it's like no <laughs> no um so for her it was hard to find the language to identify with that and it just it becomes so much harder to find your identity embrace who you are when you don't have the words for it um and Throughout the special, she talks a lot about carrying that shame regarding her sexual identity uh, because part of it is that she spent most of her career turning her trauma into jokes. Mm -hmm. And so this Nanette is her like, I would say her like first major comedy special that's incredibly successful in the United States. But she has a few other comedy specials prior to that. And she was, you know, a touring comedian. Um, But one of the things that she noticed and sort of the rallying cry of Nanette is, I think it's time for me to quit comedy or I need to quit comedy. And she keeps, especially later on in the special, she repeats it a few times. And what she talks about is, so when it comes to telling a joke, there's usually two parts, right? There's the setup and then the punchline. And the setup usually involves creating tension for the audience and then the punchline is the release of that tension and the release comes in the form of laughter Mm -hmm. but for her a lot of times creating the tension was built on sharing her trauma and making herself the butt of the joke being very self-deprecating um and she has this beautiful moment where she talks about i need to start instead of instead of telling a joke i need to start sharing my story because a story has three parts, a middle, uh, I'm sorry, beginning, a middle and an end. But jokes just have two, the setup and the punchline. So a lot of times with jokes, you never know how it resolves, how that story or that situation resolves. And what winds up happening for her that she goes into is that because she keeps telling these jokes, you know, her coming out story or her history with ter- coming to terms with her s- sexuality or Unfortunately, she tells this story about, um, you know, a man accosting her because she's flirting with his girlfriend. And because she keeps reliving this trauma, she just has to keep kind of living in that space so it never evolves and she it's hard for her to heal from it. So it's this very cathartic thing because, you know, I, I think in any marginalized group, whether it's you know, based on your race, your gender, your sexual um, orientation. A lot of times jokes are used as a way to deflect your trauma um, and to go like, it's okay if you laugh at this because I'm laughing. 
mm-hmm. but it doesn't ever let you to really move beyond that. Mm-hmm. And she has this quote, uh, quote, punchlines need trauma because punchlines need tension and tension feeds trauma. So the joke is this traumatic point of the story. And again, when you keep reliving that over and over and you're rewriting your memory, you can't ever move past that. And so um, she makes this sort of declaration of like, I've got to quit comedy because I can't keep being so self-destructive. I've been self-deprecating for so long and everybody's been laughing at my expense versus laughing with me. And that is a very painful place to be. Um, So throughout the special, she keeps coming back again to this mantra of I'm quitting comedy because when self-deprecating humor is coming from somebody in the margins, it's not humor, it's humiliating. And this is the exact quote that she has, quote, I've built a career out of self-deprecating humor and I don't want to do that anymore. Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak, and I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. If that means that my comedy career is over, then so be it, end quote. And so that, like... I think is part of the reason why this comedy special in particular really sort of rocked the comedy world because you had so many people, whether they were comedians or not, but who identified with that sentiment of like, I keep putting myself in harm's way, sometimes intentionally to make myself more approachable to make myself more acceptable. It's like what you were talking about with Babs where and the DOB, right? Like, let's be nice. Let's play nice so that way people will accept us and it will be okay, even if it means it comes at the detriment of ourselves, even if it means we keep putting ourselves in harm's way and don't advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's this like really beautiful moment. And again, she's she's just really... She's going for it, and there is a moment where she gets viscerally angry, and she talks about men in power and how, like with Picasso and that 17-year-old girl, right? Like, a girl who is 17, anyone who is 17, you don't have your wits about you. You don't have you, – you have no power, right? Like – you are the underdog in that situation. I I don't care. Like it being 17, you're a child. Um, and she talks about some of the trauma that she's she's gone through. Again, this it's a wonderful special. It is very heavy. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say if you have time, watch D- Douglas right after it, because Douglas is far more lighthearted. Uh, that's her second, that's her other special that came out um more recently. But she has this really beautiful quote of that that centers around how especially women who are older people don't really try to take advantage of us right i mean they still might but when you have more experience in life and you know how to fight for yourself people are a little less likely to fuck with you and the quote is there is no way anyone would dare test their strength out on me because you all know that there is nothing stronger than a broken woman who has rebuilt herself And it just like you become 
unfuckwithable <laughs> at that point. Totally. Totally. And so it's this like it's just this beautiful special of watching someone reclaim their strength, reclaim their power and go like I'm going to make art for myself essentially. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's too damn bad. Um and that special in particular like again, it it meant for me to see that like that was I think the year that that was released was where I was really starting to come to terms with my sexual identity and it it became something where it was like, oh, yeah, like you don't have to keep making jokes about whatever you're struggling with, whether it be, um, you know, a, a mental uh, mental health disorder, a disability, um, any kind of marginalization. Like you don't have to put yourself down to get a laugh out of somebody to make other people feel comfortable. If anything, like stop punching down at yourself and start punching up at the people around you who have the power that need to listen. This special in particular sort of like gave her the title of being an activist and being an LGBTQIA plus advocate. And the final quote that I have with from her is that, quote, I think when you're in a position where you're visible, you have to be louder for the little guys. I deal with the responsibility of being out and proud and even as loud as much as I possibly can be, because there are people who need to see me. I don't need to see me. I see me every day. But I understand the importance of being a public person who can be representative of a minority, end quote. And like, especially, I think, for her coming from a background where she didn't have anybody to help her find those words, being able to give that language to other people has kind of become like this, this huge part of who she is and what she does and the comedy that she makes and and the stories that she tells. Um, so if you're not familiar with Hannah Gadsby, uh, I know both Nanette and Douglas are available on Netflix. Um, she has a memoir out now, which I haven't had the opportunity to read yet, but she's just like I, the way that she deals with her own pain that I think is a pain that is very relatable to people from marginalized groups. It, it just it, it's such it's so cathartic to watch and to listen to. So uh, especially with like how difficult things are right now, um, you know, the the queer community is unfortunately still under attack. Women's rights are under attack. So many things are under attack. I think it's 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 a special that's incredibly relevant. Yeah. And I highly recommend in honor of pride. Go watch it. Yeah. Go listen. Cry. Feel your feelings. And then go watch Douglas. <laughs> I need that right now. Um, so couple notes. Yeah, I have never seen Hannah's um comedy. I know uh -huh. who she is. I've seen bits about her before, but I actually became most knowledgeable of her probably in the last year when a mm -hmm. friend of mine actually reached out and had asked me if I'd seen her comedy and I'd been like, oh no. Ah. And my friend had said, I recently watched, I think it was a comedy. I think mm -hmm. it was one of her comedy or maybe it was her book. I'm not hundred percent sure what my friend had consumed of Hannah's, but I had recently been exposed to something she had created or published about her autism. Yep. Yeah. And that my friend was like, I think I've had an epiphany that I might be on the spectrum. Oh, yeah. 
it was like whatever. I, I don't know if it was something in her comedy, but I think in, Hannah so, had like sparked that for her. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, I think so. I will say if you are so she so Hannah has ADHD and autism. She's been diagnosed with both. And in Douglas, I know she does. She talks about getting her autism diagnosis. So if you were somebody who's been like curious about mental health, I would recommend watch Douglas. It she goes into it quite deeply. Um and she t- there's I don't think she talks about it in either one of the specials. I think she talks about it maybe in her book or there's an interview with Rolling Stone where she talks about um how she was for a time in her life she was homeless and she's like I do think it was my ADHD diagnosis and cuz like with ADHD it's very common that you're bad with money, you're bad with budgeting and also like it can be hard to hold down a job. It can, like there's so many things um, that it can impact. But she's she's also like a huge mental health advocate as well. And she's her the, the way that she gets so vulnerable and shares her stories, I totally. think, has made a lot of people sort of have these like eye opening moments. That's I'm so excited for your friend. I like hope it's been good. <laughs> yeah. And like I, I feel like I should like follow up and be like, yeah. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> and I remember being like, oh, my God, I'd heard of Hannah before and I didn't even know she had a- any kind of autism. And so I was just like, what an interesting like fact, because I feel like a lot of the time, too, there's this kind of like stigma around autism, like yeah. where it has to be some very like in your face, obvious yeah. thing. And yet what we aren't so familiar with in our society is that there's actually a very large spectrum of autism and it's a probably a lot more common than we are aware yeah uh yeah there's a lot of i mean there's a lot of mental health um disorders that kind of like adhd is another one that the more that they learn about it the more that they're like oh this is probably incredibly common like (laughs) Ah, like there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of women, like millennial women who are be, who are being diagnosed with it and they've had it their whole life, but it presents itself very differently in women than it does in men. Really? Yeah. And I, I've like ranted about this a lot. I actually don't think it has anything to do with gender. I think it has to do more with how you were raised because I have friends, like friends who are, you know, assigned male at birth and who identify as men who were not diagnosed until their 30s. And they actually present more in what we consider like the female presentation of it. So like ADHD, when you think of it, you likely think of like a little boy running around, bouncing off the walls, screaming being mm-hmm. kind of like out of control right but little girls you were raised to be seen not heard keep your opinions to yourself be quiet be lady like like you would get all of these societal expectations placed on you so for you adhd is likely more internalized a lot of daydreaming a lot of like um not paying attention or what we would consider the inattentive versus mm-hmm. the hyperactive but it's actually more more research is showing that the hyperactive and the inattentive are they go hand in hand. It's just mm-hmm. maybe if you are someone who is raised to be quiet and to be controlled, maybe instead of running around screaming, bouncing off the walls for you, your your hyperactivity presents itself in like bouncing your knee or uh, mm-hmm. 
playing with your hair or being very fidgety. Totally. So there's like it's it's a lot. But the more research that they're doing, the more that they're discovering like a lot of women have it and far more people have it than we ever thought before. But that's not what we initially thought ADHD presented no. as was so narrow totally. versus what it actually is. And it's the same with autism. Like like you said, there's a very wide spectrum of it. I also recently read about um that I don't I don't know how much research is on this. I think I might have read like an article or two, but that uh ADHD can also be developed in response to having gone through traumatic life experiences Mm -hmm. like it could have developed out of that yeah um which is wild to think about i mean if if that's true then of course it's probably a lot more prevalent than we would Uh, ever have imagined because people go through a lot of fucked up shit in our world yeah yeah especially like with um they said that the like adhd diagnosis diagnoses skyrocketed during the pandemic and I think part of it was like, so being very open on this uh, episode, <laughs> I, I have ADHD. I wasn't diagnosed until I think 2018. Um, and part of it for me was that like, I did really well in school. I like, um, I was doing a million things in school. And one, I think for me, like I love school. I love learning. So mm-hmm. there's, it's called hyper-focus with ADHD or just in general, but like, because I loved learning, I could focus on school. Um, but then, like, all throughout, you know, my my uh, school career and even into my 20s and, uh, like, late 20s in working in a career, I, I worked so much and I had so many things going on that – and I look back and I'm like, no, things were a struggle, but I was so busy – that I didn't have time to not get it done, right? Like mm-hmm. my my schedule was incredibly structured. And then it wasn't until I moved into a role at work where I got to make my own schedule and I didn't have my day planned out yeah. for me. And I was like, oh, fuck. And I couldn't focus. I couldn't like get anything done. I had like a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And then I started Googling and it was like, mm-hmm. you may have ADHD. <laughs> here are some tests to take self-assessment yeah, test and yeah. it was like you've got a 90 percent chance that you have adhd and i was like fuck what and i know yeah. a lot of people in that situation where yes. if everything's been planned for you it's it's harder to diagnose or you come up with all of these coping mechanisms to push yourself through it like i am a caffeine fiend like mm-hmm. it doesn't i feel like it doesn't have any effect on me which is a symptom of ADHD, by the way, because uh, it's a stimulant <laughs> and it calms you down versus like you feel like you're going to oh like God. shake violently out of your seat. Um, there's so many things. But like the more I've learned about it, the more I realize like, oh, I know a lot of people have ADHD. Okay. Like, so I think I have ADHD. If I'm you like have questions, positive. let me know. Oh, I'm happy I, to talk I'm through like, with you. <laughs> I've thought that for like the past year and mm-hmm. I like definitely know the telltale signs in my life currently right now. But then when I look back on my childhood, I'm like, okay, I'm seeing it there as well. If you, if anybody is listening and or yourself, <laughs> um, I found the website that I found that had all these self test self assessment tests. It's called attitude but it's a d d i t u d e dot com this is not a sponsor i talk about them all the time not a sponsor um but they have like 
do you think you have ADHD? Take this Mm self-assessment. And then you can do it as like an adult woman versus like if you were if you can think back to how you felt as a little girl, you can do the test. And that's what I did. And I was like, oh, shit, I've had this my whole life. Dope. Um, But then there's also like, you know, a bipolar disorder assessment, depression, anxiety. I think there's an autism one as well, because like a lot of times these things things either overlap or they maybe so for me I was initially diagnosed with anxiety and depression before I was diagnosed with ADHD and then once I treated the ADHD my anxiety and depression went away and part of it is like right I was like dope but so and sometimes you do maybe have all three but a lot of times what happens is like because you can't focus and you can't get anything done and you like keep dropping the ball because of your ADHD, you become increasingly depressed. And then when you know you have things that you have to do, you get increasingly anxious. So it creates this like really vicious cycle Mm -hmm. of anxiety and depression. So a lot of times it gets misdiagnosed. Um, So that is my spiel on ADHD. Interesting. Well, I will be linking all of these things in the show notes. So everybody can do their self at home test right now. Do it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be doing mine. For sure. Uh, yeah, but like a lot of people uh, during the pandemic, because they their routine was ripped away yeah. from them, a lot of people got diagnosed with ADHD. And it's just because they didn't have that tight, super tight schedule anymore. Um, and they could have had it their whole life and they just didn't know because that structure was ripped away. But totally. it's, yeah. It's, uh... you know, I feel it with the podcast stuff because like I I decide myself what gets done and when and then I'm like, I can't do anything. Yeah, it can be such that's honestly, that's one of my big fears with like going into freelance life. I'm like, holy shit, I like have to schedule my day or else I will get nothing done because my ADHD will just be like, oh, we're chilling today. And I'll be like, yeah. no, you have to do something like you have bills to pay. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. No. But yeah, it's uh, so if anybody has any advice, please let me know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just getting answers is so nice. And it's like it I think that's like one of the beautiful things about Hannah's specials is uh-huh. it's so relatable. Like, it's just nice knowing that you're not alone and you're not totally. struggling through things by yourself. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that Nanette did is like it gives you this place to be like, oh, OK, somebody understands like uh-huh. I'm not flying through space by myself (laughs) oh I love it that was so cool I'm so happy I learned so much about her and that I can watch her freaking comedy Mm -hmm. shows all weekend long yeah yeah hell yeah specials enjoy pride like watch all of the things I love it thank you so much for bringing her on the show of course thanks for having me on the show I love doing this it's always so much fun and I also love that you pick somebody that like is in the world that you're passionate about. Yeah, part of my <laughs> because like the last time I was on the show, both of us covered people where, who had like very tragic stories, and I was like, I cannot <laughs> do that. I need like even if they have like tragedy in their life, because you know that's the human experience. I need somebody who's like alive <laughs> and like having a nice time. So that was my main goal. <laughs> All right, now we just need Hannah to reshare the pod- podcast episode. Holy God! Oh my God! <laughs> And then get us oh my some VIP tickets to our next show. Please, please. <laughs> we die. Oh, uh, I love it. Well, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Fuck yeah to Pride. Fuck yeah to episode 100. That was great. Oh, my God. Yes. Fantastic. What a whew, congratulations. That's amazing. Uh, all of it was amazing. Thank you for joining me on the fun ride tonight. Anytime. All right. Anytime.
Well, thanks so much. And I guess that does it. I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thank you guys so much for tuning back in to another episode of Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. I hope you missed me just as much as I missed you. If you've been enjoying this podcast all four years that we've been live and you haven't yet given us a written review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to do that today and also swing by the Spotify app and give us a rating over there as well. Lastly, if you know anybody out there in the world that would really, really love this show, please be sure to tell them all about us. Send them our podcast episodes or the link to our Instagram page because sharing is caring and there is so much more room at this table of badass motherfucking bitches who drink bubbly. All right. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.